Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. We are running a little late this week, and I do apologize. As John mentioned last time, I've been out with the plague, and while my voice is finally back, uh, I've had a migraine for days, which is slowing me all the way down. If you think my jokes are bad normally, you do not want to hear the ones I write with brain fog. (laughs) So finally, we are back, but you know what? Something just came up in the news today that actually changed my plan for this episode. Something so big, we couldn't possibly ignore it. Now, I'm not talking about the six-week abortion ban in Texas. We covered that in episode one, so if you're interested in hearing about contraception and abortion throughout history, and why restricting these things is extraordinarily dangerous and, frankly, impossible, you should check that out. It's still relevant, and sadly, probably will be in this country for some time. No, this week... I'm referring to the breaking news that Spanish bishop and exorcist Xavier Novell recently resigned his position because he fell in love with a romance author named Sylvia Caballo. Commenting on leaving the church, Novell said, I have fallen in love and I want to do things properly. Now, the fact that Caballo writes romance with religious themes, dubbed satanic undertones, is a bit of a surprise given that Novell was ultra-conservative, even for the church. He reportedly met Caballo through his interest in demonology. He is an exorcist, after all, and they hit it off from there. Hey, I get it. When you're a bit creepy, it's exciting to meet other people who are creepy, too. Ask me how I know. Anyway, I wish them the very best, but of course, not everyone does. Some of his church colleagues told Spanish media that they didn't believe Novell is really in love. Rather, they think that he's possessed. They also said that Pope Francis personally urged Novell to have an exorcism to cure it. Is that a compliment or what? (laughs) Dude's so into you, he needs an exorcism. Sylvia, honey, I don't know what perfume you're wearing, but I want it. Look, we can joke about this all day, but in all seriousness, this isn't the first time that demons have been blamed for sexual attraction. Since day one, just about, the church has been all about resisting lust, like it's a personal failing or something you can control, rather than, I don't know, basic human biology. Now, if you believe in all that, you know, that lust comes from the devil as some sort of fucked up test that you really want to fail... It makes sense that you can blame your impure thoughts on the devil in a roundabout kind of way. But as fear of witches began to pick up steam in medieval Europe, people took it one step further. It wasn't only the devil causing you to feel lust. Your object of attraction was doing it to you with the devil's aid. It's not your fault you have a problematic crush. She's just a witch. 
This isn't to say that all witches, or people accused of being witches, were women. Anybody could be accused of being one if they were perceived as inconvenient or dangerous. Not necessarily dangerous in a physical sense, but dangerous to public decency, dangerous to the church, dangerous to your marriage, and dangerous because of what they knew or what they represented. And a lot of times, yeah, those people were women. These days, when you mention witch trials in history, most people automatically think of Salem or earlier, when people accused of being witches were tortured, drowned, hanged, or burned at the stake. But the punishment wasn't always that severe. How do we know? Penitentials. Yes, I'm going to get into primary sources here with you for just a minute, but bear with me. This is actually more fun than it sounds. So when you study the Middle Ages, the temptation is to stop at canon law. That is, the rules and guidelines set by the church. The mistake is in assuming that everyone lived by it. Even prominent people within the church disagreed with each other, and the laws they reached by consensus were laws for an ideal world where everyone lived perfect Christian lives according to the standard of whichever pope they happened to have at the time. Now, as you can imagine, not everyone lived the way that Rome wanted them to. To get a more accurate picture of medieval life, we need to consider other sources, like court documents, medical texts, and even popular literature. The source we're focusing on today is a personal favorite of mine, penitential literature. So what, pray tell, is a penitential? Well, penitentials were confessional literature compiled by monks as guides to the theory and application of confession. Spanning hundreds of pages and multiple volumes, Penitentials listed every sin imaginable, and some you couldn't imagine if you tried, and they advised specific punishments for each one. Penitentials are a fantastic source for people studying the Middle Ages, but you have to proceed with caution. While many of the sins do give us a better idea about the ways normal people might misbehave, it's impossible to say how often some of these things actually came up. You'll see what I'm talking about. So with that disclaimer firmly in place, we are going to take a closer look at the Decretum of Burkhard of Worms. Apart from having the best name ever, uh, Burkhard served as the Bishop of Worms from the year 1000 until his death in 1025. During his tenure, he wrote his Decretum, a massive 20-book list of every sin conceivable to the medieval imagination drawing on a combination of earlier penitentials and things that were actually heard in confession at the time. Some of the penitentials he used as sources dated back to the 7th century, and this may help to explain some of these stranger sins that he came up with. Christianity didn't conquer Europe all at once, and many pagan traditions the church opposed as magic managed to hold out for centuries. Case in point, the 19th book of Burkhard's Decretum has a section dealing in sickness of the soul, including magic, divination, and what he calls women's vices. It's worth noting that many of the diabolical practices mentioned could be forgiven with a fairly light penance, as opposed to the death sentences handed out like candy 400 years later with the publication of the Malleus Maleficarum. Many of these are framed as questions a priest would ask his penitent. It's a bit like a surreal game of never have I ever. So here are a few of my favorites. Have you violated a grave? By which I mean, after you see someone buried, have you gone at night, 
broken open the grave and taken his clothes? If you have, you should do penance for two years on the appointed fast days. Okay, not so much on the grave robbery. Noted. I guess I'll just shop at Target like a sucker. Have you refused to attend Mass or prayers, or to make an offering to a married priest, by which I mean have you not wished to confess your sins to him, or receive the body and the blood of the Lord from him, because you thought that he was a sinner? If you have done so, you should do penance for one year on the appointed fast days. That's right. He said married priest. At this point, priests were still allowed to marry or have mistresses. Clerical marriage wasn't condemned by the Pope until Leo IX in 1049, but the ban didn't take hold until well into the 12th century after the Lateran Councils in 1123 and 1139. So much for that celibacy. Have you tasted your husband's semen in order to make his love for you burn greater through your diabolical deeds? If you have, you should do seven years of penance on the appointed fast days. Okay, I mean, yeah, oral sex has magical properties. Everybody knows this. What's next? Have you done what some women are wont to do? They take their menstrual blood, mix it into food or drink, and give it to their men to eat or drink to make them love them more. If you have done this, you should do five years of penance on the appointed fast days. <laughs> How's that for a binding spell? Now, if that doesn't work, have you done what some women are wont to do? They take a live fish and put it in their vagina, keeping it there for a while until it is dead. Then they cook it or roast it and give it to their husbands to eat, doing this in order to make men be more ardent in their love for them. If you have done this, you should do two years of penance on the appointed fast days. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I just need to take a minute to appreciate that I read that whole thing without laughing. One take. Excellent. Let's see if I can keep going. <laughs> Have you done what some women are accustomed to do? They lie face down on the ground, uncover their buttocks, and tell someone to make bread on their naked buttocks. When they have cooked it, they give it to their husbands to eat. They do this to make them more ardent in their love for them. If you have, you should do two years of penance on the appointed fast days. That's right, guys. Bread. On your butt. Okay. Have you done what some women are wont to do? They take a man's skull, burn it, and give it to their husbands to drink for health. If you have, you should do one year of penance on the appointed fast days. I mean, you know, I, I carve a lot of skulls into, like, my pottery. I haven't used an actual skull. You know, yet. Have you believed what many women, turning back to Satan, believe, and assert to be true? You believe that in the stillness of a quiet night... When you gather in your bed with your husband lying at your bosom, that you are physically able to pass through closed doors and can travel across the span of the earth with others deceived by a similar error? And that you can kill baptized people redeemed by Christ's blood without using visible weapons and then, after cooking their flesh, can eat it and put straw, wood, or something like this in place of their hearts, and, though you have eaten them, you can bring them back to life and grant them a stay during which they can live? If you have believed this, you should do penance for 40 days, that is, a quarantine, on bread and water with seven years of penance subsequently. 
Well, that escalated quickly, and it is very specific. Has anyone done that? You don't have to answer that. Have you done what some adulterous women do? As soon as they find out that their lovers wish to take lawful wives, then they use some sort of evil art to extinguish the men's sexual desires so that they are useless to their wives and unable to have intercourse with them? If you have done this or taught others to, you should do penance for ten days on bread and water. Yeah, someone put a spell on you. That's why you're not attracted to your wife. Time and again, witchcraft is blamed when men can't understand why they're not attracted to their church-approved partner and would rather see the person they actually want be literally burned at the stake rather than accept for one second that love is not something that they can control. In the 11th century, fortunately, it was still bread and water. For the accused, anyway, the men were fine. But the punishment for being attractive to married men got a lot worse very quickly, which is something that we're going to cover next week. Now, because it's magic we're using, of course. All we want is more unsolicited dick pics, and we're in league with the devil to get them. That's heavy sarcasm. If I get anything other than glamour shots of Dick Clark in my DMs, I'm closing them forever, I swear to God. Okay, so where were we? (laughs) Have you done what some women are accustomed to do? They take off their clothes and smear honey all over their naked body. With the honey on their body, they roll themselves back and forth with wheat on a sheet spread on the ground. They carefully collect all the grains of wheat sticking to their moist body, put them in a mill, turn the mill in the opposite direction of the sun, grind the wheat into flour, and bake bread from it. Then they serve it to their husbands to eat, who then grow weak and die. If you have... You should do penance for 40 days on bread and water. You know, the uh, the Great British Baking Show is back this month. I can't imagine what made me think of that. But wait a minute. Only 40 days for murdering somebody with magic bread? 2020 might have been the year of sourdough, but if the plague goes on much longer, I wonder if this recipe might make a comeback. And speaking of baking, also included under women's vices, for some reason, we have... Have you eaten any food from Jews or other pagans which they prepare for you? If you have, you should do penance for ten days on bread and water. That's right. Any food prepared by Jewish or non-Christian people is out. I guess they were afraid of it being too interesting. Now, as weird as these sound, some of them are revealing of superstitions and pagan rituals that had survived until the 11th century through confessional literature, if not in real life. Now, we do need to take these with a pinch of salt, however. While some of them could be indicative of real practice, others are just as likely to have been imagined or embellished by bored monks copying these manuscripts and drawing butts in the margins. But interestingly enough, Burkert also tackles the issue of abortion in this section. Now, Burkert was against abortion, but the penance recommended varied. To Burkert, the severity of sin was not dependent on the act itself, but the status of the women and the circumstances of conception. The worst crime was abortion resulting from adultery. For this, he orders seven years of abstinence and a lifetime of, quote, tears and humility. Abortion stemming from fornication was also bad, 
with penance for 10 years on fast days, unless the woman was poor or a sex worker, which was honestly statistically likely. If the woman was poor and acted because she would not be able to feed a child, abortion was understandable and no penance was prescribed. But people who are opposed to abortion for religious reasons now don't like you to mention that. Now, this episode is based on research for an article that I published four years ago. And in that time, the religious website that hosted the full translation of Burkert's Decretum has since taken it down. The most complete version online of this chapter that I've been able to find is actually my own article from 2017. That's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like some people don't want you to be able to easily verify that the church changed its mind on abortion. But don't worry. (laughs) Burkert is not the only source on this. Absolutely not. We've got plenty more on this blog and in episode one of the podcast. And lots of other fantastic historians have written about it as well, particularly in academic journals. Now, if you've never taken a deep dive into these, I cannot recommend them enough. At the moment, JSTOR is offering a hundred free articles a month on every subject you can think of, and you should absolutely take them up on that. This is not a sponsored plug, okay? JSTOR is legit the number one place that I get my sources for this podcast, apart from my local university library. And at the moment, you can have access to it too. I really hope you check it out. So it is September and Halloween season is officially here. In honor of my favorite holiday, we're going to spend the next two months bringing you historical episodes of a creepier persuasion, including the second part of this episode, looking at the Malleus Maleficarum, the infamous 15th century guide to hunting witches, next week. Of course I have a copy. Obviously I have a copy. Doesn't everybody? Anyway, (laughs) as I mentioned, we'll be talking about that next Wednesday, so I hope that you tune in. As for today, this episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you, unwittingly, by JSTOR, as well as our marvelous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Janine Meberg, and Jessica Miller. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at dirtysexyhistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will, of course, post photos for this week's show. Now, sadly, we do not actually have any photos of someone making bread on their butt, so you're going to have to use your imagination on that one. Uh, But uh, we'll do our best to find some pieces of interest for you. Uh, Dirty Sexy History, of course, is an independent podcast, and this episode was written, produced, researched, and all that good stuff by me, Jessica Kale. And it was edited by the incredibly patient John Jenkins. My sources today include BBC News. Spanish Bishop Quits for Love for Erotic Writer James Brundage, Sex and Canon Law Burkhardt of Worms, Decretum Reed McCarter, Spanish Bishop Resigns to Pursue Relationship with Satanic-Tinged Erotic Fiction Author, AV Club 
Pierre J. Payer, Confession and the Study of Sex in the Middle Ages. John M. Riddle, Contraception and Early Abortion in the Middle Ages. See you next week.